You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Elizabeth, and I'm a pastoral resident here at Third. And today we're starting a new sermon series for the season of Advent that is about the, um, the women named in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. We're calling it the Mothers of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to hear today's reading read by Morgan Thomas. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that as the scripture is read and your words proclaimed, we may hear it with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Good morning, third family. Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and Genesis 38, verses 11 through 19, and 24 through 30. Here's Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, and so on. And from Genesis 38. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife." When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge shall I give you? Your seal and its cord, and your staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. After about three months, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Sarah. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Well, I got married on April 9th, 2020. April 9th, 2020. Does that date make you shudder just a little bit? <laughs> just a couple weeks into the pandemic, my husband Will and I realized that we were going to need to cancel our big wedding that we had planned for that May. And Will was working with COVID patients, and we didn't know what that would mean. And so we decided to go ahead and get married on the first day off that he had. And so we got married on the side of a road in a field um, with just Corey there as the efficient and two other friends were there with us. And, you know, God has been really gracious to us in spite of the unexpected way that our wedding has happened. That day was actually really lovely. But one thing that stands out to me from that day is that besides Will, I didn't hug anyone on my wedding day. There's this picture. Uh, is a, a picture that was taken on our wedding day. Let's see if it'll show up. I feel like this kind of belongs in like a time capsule or something. Um, <laughs> this is Will's parents and his sister who came to our front yard after our little ceremony. Um, but we kept a social distance from them and we didn't give them a hug. And my family actually watched uh, from Alabama over Zoom outside and they didn't hug each other either. <laughs> um, For the last few hundred years, you know, our society has been growing more and more disconnected from our bodies, from the earth, from one another. We've moved over this time from rural areas, small towns, to big industrial cities, and then to the suburbs. And then we moved to living our lives on the internet. And now we're heading towards the metaverse, which honestly, I don't even know what that is. But I think we're heading there. <laughs> um, and the pandemic has just exacerbated these impulses that we already had to hide behind our screens, to distance ourselves from one another, to stay safe in our own homes. And of course, there was good reason for that for a time. But even when it's safe to come out and to come back together, I think all of us, for one reason, to one degree or another, we've been scared to do it. Because embodiment is vulnerable, and vulnerability is scary. And I think that's what's so striking about what Matthew is doing in these first few texts of the New Testament. You know who didn't have the luxury to live life behind a screen over the last 20 months? Parents. Diapers don't get changed remotely unfortunately. You can't zoom in to comfort your child when they've scraped their knee. You can't take the midnight feeding from a distance. Parents have been up to their necks in the embodiment of this world over the course of the pandemic. And not to deny fatherhood anything that it's owed, but I do think that mothers have a unique experience of this embodiment as the ones whose bodies grow and protect and sustain and deliver into the world and feed their babies. And so Matthew starts his gospel with this great long drum roll of Jesus's impressive pedigree. And the genealogy in the ancient world was like a resume. And so with each generation, this resume builds its, its power, right? We pass through 
Abraham, and then Moses, and then David, and Solomon, and the anticipation is building that maybe, just maybe, at the end of this line, the child might be the long-awaited Messiah, the true king that we've been waiting for, God's chosen one. And Matthew's genealogy does show us that Jesus fulfills all of the layers and the levels of those prophecies of old. But unlike traditional genealogies, which would have only included the male ancestors, Matthew includes the names of five mothers, four of Jesus's great-great-grandmothers and his mother, Mary. And I think the inclusion of these mothers in the genealogy brings to, uh, brings to mind this embodiment, this enfleshment, this incarnation between mother and child. It's a reminder that Jesus didn't beam in as some kind of spiritual avatar into the metaverse. He didn't join the Zoom meeting from a distance. Jesus took on all of the vulnerability of a fully embodied reality. He came into the world through a birth canal. He had a mother who taught him to eat and walk and who comforted him when he cried. And he had a family history. He had grandmothers and great-grandmothers who had their own stories and who had borne the weight of the world in their own ways. And what's even more interesting about what Matthew does is that these women in particular are not the women that most Hebrews would have wanted to include in their genealogical resumes. You see, each of these women was, for one reason or another, an outsider. They were devalued, they were cast off, marginalized, forgotten, they were vulnerable. One commentator says it's almost like Matthew chose the most salacious women he could find in Jesus' lineage, and those were the women that he chose to highlight. Fleming Rutledge is an Episcopal priest in New York City, and um, she preached an Advent sermon right after the events of 9-11 in which she said this. She said, Advent says Christmas is not for sissies. Advent says, flatly contradicting that Christmas song, that all your troubles are not going to be miles away. Advent says, this world is full of darkness, and it was into such a world as this, not a fairyland, that the Son of God came. And the inclusion of these particular mothers in the genealogy of Jesus is just such a reminder for us. Their stories are not going to be found in children's Bibles or on the front of a Christmas greeting card. But God saw them and came to them in the midst of their stories. And through each one of these women, he comes to us in the midst of our stories. You see, the Bible is a book about how God delights to use the most surprising, sometimes even the most broken people, people up to their necks in the muck and the mire of their embodied reality to accomplish his purpose of restoration in this world. So the first mother that we're going to look at in this series is Tamar, whose story is found in Genesis 38. Kids, I want to know who remembers Joseph from the book of Genesis. All right, what was special about what Joseph wore? What did he wear? Yeah. A coat of lots of different colors. Awesome. And Joseph was, you know, the youngest of 12 brothers, and he became this great hero of the end of the book of Genesis. 
But there's this little um, side story that happens right in the middle of Joseph's story that you maybe haven't ever noticed before. Right after Joseph is sold into slavery uh, in Genesis 37, and right before we see his great faithfulness in the land of Egypt and Potiphar's house, right in the middle of those two stories is Genesis 38, where we see a story about Joseph's older brother, Judah, and about a woman named Tamar. Tamar just shows up in this one chapter, and in many ways, it it seems like her story is a digression from the main event, right? But what we're going to see today when we read her story is that it's not a digression from the main event at all. Today, we're going to look at Tamar's radical vulnerability, her radical courage, and through her courage, God's radical redemption. And Tamar's story is going to remind us that God works redemption and restoration in the most surprising ways and through the most surprising people. So let's start with Tamar's vulnerability. Here's some background. Genesis 38 tells us that Judah had left his brothers and their land, and he had gone to live with some friends in Canaan. Now, this is the first red flag for us because the Israelites are not supposed to hang out with the Canaanites. So we know that something is up. And there, he marries a Canaanite woman, uh, the daughter of Shua, and they had three sons together, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And a Canaanite woman named Tamar was given in marriage to the oldest son, Er. Now, right off the bat, the story tells us that Er was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that God put him to death, leaving Tamar a widow. And in agricultural society, like like the one in which the Hebrews lived, land was money. So without land, you couldn't grow crops, you couldn't keep livestock. Without crops and livestock, you wouldn't have anything to eat, but you also wouldn't have anything to trade for the other goods that you might need. And in a patriarchal society, women couldn't own land. So the only way that they could provide for themselves, that they could have protection, was through their connection to a man, either to their husband or to their father. That's what made widows like Tamar so very vulnerable. And that's why the scriptures talk about caring for widows so much. Because in this kind of society, widows were utterly vulnerable. They were the most vulnerable people in the entire society, even more vulnerable than babies. And so Tamar had left the protection of her father's house, and when her husband died, she lost the right to his land and his inheritance. She had no means of working or providing for herself. So at such a young age, we have this young woman, Tamar, who has likely been traumatized by being married to a man who was very wicked, who's now a social outsider. She's marginalized within her own society. And it's for this reason that Judah instructs his second son, Onan, to marry Tamar. Now, let's be honest. This whole business of multiple wives and giving someone in marriage to the brother of your dead husband, it's pretty weird to us. Um, And it might even strike you as offensive or um, unjust. And that's okay, but let's take off our 21st century lens for just a second, and let's see how Tamar experiences this custom. Because, you see, this tradition, which is called leveret marriage, was actually something that functioned within this kind of patriarchal and agricultural society to protect vulnerable widows. And we actually see that it later shows up in Deuteronomy as part of the Mosaic law. So 
It was the responsibility of the husband's family to provide for and protect the widow in this way. It was something that could reconnect this widow with a piece of land, which was her means of survival. And so even though it seems weird to us, this custom seems weird to us, Tamar fights for it. It's her right, and it's her only means of survival. But Onan didn't want to play by the rules. He knew that if Tamar had kids, then it would mean less land and less inheritance for him and for his kids. So he refuses to obey his father and to do his duty, and he refuses to have children with Tamar. So Tamar, who has no recourse on her own, was left helpless by this one person who was supposed to help her. And Onan's refusal to take care of Tamar was seen as so wicked in the sight of God that God also put Onan to death. So now we have Tamar, who's twice a widow. And what Judah does next only compounds Tamar's vulnerability. There's one more brother, Shelah, but it seems like Shelah is too young to be married. And so instead of taking Tamar into Judah's own home to take care of her until Shelah grows up a little bit, um, Tamar, uh, Judah sends Tamar back to her father's household, which is apparently pretty far away. And, you know, it seems that Judah really doesn't have any intention of marrying Tamar with Shelah. Out of sight, out of mind. So Tamar's vulnerability just builds and builds and builds because of the wickedness and the sin and the injustice of those people who were supposed to protect her. She's this young woman who in her short life has borne incredible trauma. She was married as a young teenager to a man who was so vile that God put him to death. Then she became a widow, so the security that she would have been offered through marriage was taken away. As a woman, she had no agency, no ability to protect herself, no ability to inherit land, no ability to work or earn an income. She had absolutely no social standing, no protection at all. And she had nowhere to turn. And then she's cast off by the one person who could protect her. The man who was supposed to provide for her repeatedly rejected her and refused to do so. I wonder... Who are the Tamars in our society? Who are the people who are constantly trampled under the hooves of a society that is not built to protect them? Tamar is a racial outsider. She's a social outsider. She's a moral outsider. And she doesn't have any recourse. Who are those people? So years pass, it seems, and Tamar is waiting at her, dad, at her father's house for Judah to get in touch. I imagine her every year thinking, how old would Shayla be now? And thinking if it might be time for her to get married. Um, and it seems like time has passed enough time to where Judah had grown, or Tamar had grown up, sorry, Shayla had grown up, but Tamar's still waiting. And so it seems like her suspicion has come true. When Judah told her, you go wait, don't call me, I'll call you, it was actually so that she could go away and be forgotten. But Tamar refuses to be forgotten, and this is where our story takes a bit of a wild turn. 
One day, Tamar hears that Judah is passing through a nearby town. He had gone through town uh, to go up further up country to shear his sheep, and so he was going to be passing back through when he was done shearing his sheep. And with none of the normal recourse that she would normally have in society, she has got to figure out a way to get what she's owed. And so she comes up with this dramatic plan. She disguises herself as a cult prostitute, and she waits on the side of the road for Judah to pass by. And sure enough, Judah turns her way, and he sleeps with her. But, you know, in that day, people didn't walk around with cash. And so Judah says, don't worry, I'll pay you when I get home. And I'll leave you some collateral to make sure uh, that, I, that I make good on my word. But, you know, Tamar's not really too worried about getting paid. What she is concerned about is making sure that should she get pregnant, that she has some proof of who the father is. And so what she asks for as collateral is something that would have undeniably identified this man as Judah. So she asks for his seal, his cord, and his staff. Now, before we get to the end of the story, I want to just sit for a minute in what we've seen so far. Tamar's entire desperate Hail Mary plan is hinged on the fact that she's sure that Judah would be tempted by a cult prostitute. And he is. What does that say about his character? I mean, obviously it says that he has a habit of sexual immorality, but it also says that he has a habit of worshiping Baal. So he is, a sexual, sec, he is sexually immoral, and he is also an idolater. But there is this massive double standard, isn't there? Judah can have sex whenever, with whomever he wants. And yet the second he finds out that Tamar is pregnant, what does he say? He says, burner. He says she should die. And, and he actually says to burn her at the stake, which is an even more egregious punishment than what would have been required by the law. His condemnation of her is immediate and without consideration or hesitation. He is on the verge of torturing and killing a woman for doing something that he did regularly. And you know what? No one around him bats an eye. The patriarchal society that they lived in had blinded them all to the absolutely astounding hypocrisy of his actions. But Tamar wasn't surprised. She knew that this would happen, and in fact, she had planned for it. So she uses the double standard of the society against Judah in order to get what is rightfully hers. So just before she walks the stake, before she's about to be tortured and killed, she sends Judah a message. She says, hey, you didn't bother to ask who the dad was, but this seal belongs to that man. Does it look familiar? And just like that, he's exposed in front of everybody. Now, here's the thing. Tamar isn't innocent. But I also, I, I, I don't think that the Bible is prescribing sexual entrapment here as like, you know, a recommended course of action. Um, <laughs> but I really don't think that that's the point of this story. The story is not letting Tamar off the hook, 
But this passage is undeniably condemning Judah. He was the social, moral, religious, racial insider. And he had a responsibility to use that privilege to care for the vulnerable outsider. But he refused to do so. And you know what? His society might not have batted an eye, but it mattered to God. I wonder, does this sort of thing happen today? Do the values and the prejudices of our society stoke our hypocrisy? Do they make us blind to our own sin and our own injustice? I want you to consider for a second, what kind of person, what kind of sinner does our society look at and condemn without consideration or hesitation like Judah did? And what about you? Is there a kind of person who, when you see them, your heart says, burn him? This should make us weep. And I think that this passage tells us something about what God thinks about the Tamars of the world and what he thinks about the Judas. She's not sinless, but the narrator of this passage recognizes that her goal was justice. And because she is so marginalized, she has to go to great extremes to get it. And the remarkable thing is that through this really vulnerable woman's really vulnerable and surprising courage, God brought real change and restoration in this story. So finally, we come to the end of the story. As a result of Tamar's radical courage, Judah is publicly caught in his sin. He's exposed. And what's especially surprising is that when he's caught in his sin, he doesn't turn and point the finger at someone else, which, if I'm being honest, is so often the instinct of my own heart when I'm caught in sin. He doesn't say, wait a second, what about her? This is sexual entrapment. He doesn't say, hey guys, it takes two to tango. He openly acknowledges in front of everyone his sin. He says, this woman is more righteous than I. He's acknowledging his individual sin, his role in fathering this baby, but he's also acknowledging what he's done to put Tamar in that position. And in a sense, he's acknowledging the sin of his whole society that didn't bat an eye at his hypocrisy. The people around him were ready to lead Tamar to the stake. And Judah takes full responsibility for all of that sin. He knows that he exacerbated Tamar's fragile vulnerability. But Tamar's actions cut through his delusions and his blindness, and they serve as this spiritual awakening for Judah. And, you know, we know that Tamar's actions actually caused true transformation in Judah. The text says that he did not sleep with her again, which means that he continued to protect her and provide for her out of obedience and love, not because he got something in return. And then the next time we see Judah, he's back living with his brothers in Israel. So there's some kind of familial reconciliation that happened there. And then a few chapters later, when the family of Israel was suffering famine and crisis, Judah is the one who volunteers to give his life as collateral for the life of his youngest brother, Benjamin. So this man who once 
unjustly refused to care for Tamar because of his selfishness, now displays great selflessness for the sake of his entire people. And that selfless action actually changed the course of Judah's family history for hundreds of years. Even more joyful, an even more joyful restoration came when Tamar gave birth to these two twin boys. She names one of them Zerah and the other Perez. Perez means breakthrough. Corey mentioned a few weeks ago that the word Satan means splitter, that the devil is in the business of splitting apart the good things of God, like an axe splitting a log. But Perez, this son, this breakthrough, is a different kind of splitting. It's not breaking apart. It's breaking into the mire of injustice and sin and death with new life. These two sons literally broke into the world through Tamar, restoring her connection to society that had been lost when she was widowed. Through their life, she now was entitled to land, to an inheritance, to protection. She had life. And even more surprising, although Tamar wouldn't have known it at the time, is that Tamar's actions contributed to God's breaking through our sin to bring new life into the whole world. You see, the bloodline of the Messiah, if we're reading the book of Genesis, we assume that the bloodline of the Messiah is going to go through Joshua. He's the star, right? But it doesn't. The bloodline of Jesus goes through Judah by way of Tamar. God chooses for Jesus to come through the line of Tamar, the outsider. And it's Tamar, not Judah, who's a suffering servant in this story. It's the courageous acts of Tamar, not Judah, that produce the spiritual awakening. It's Tamar, not Judah, who becomes the vehicle for God's redemption. You know, at the beginning of this story, we saw Tamar's vulnerability compound on itself, like snowballing downward towards destitution, right? But there's this great change, this surprise at the end, where we see the restoration of God compound on itself. It's this ripple effect of restoration. It starts with the individual, and then there's restoration in the family, and then in the society, and then through the generations, and through Jesus to the entire world. This Advent, Tamar's story reminds us that God is still breaking through. He's breaking through the mire and the muck and the sin and the injustices of our world to bring new life. The message of Advent is that Christ doesn't remain behind some spiritual plexiglass barrier. He's not a disembodied reality, like a square on a screen. Jesus breaks through to us here, in this world, into our stories. So maybe this morning you feel like Tamar. Maybe you feel like you have been trampled by society's injustices. You've been forgotten. Or maybe you're like Judah, stuck in the mire and the blindness of your own selfishness. So stuck that you don't even see your sin for what it is. Or honestly, you know, maybe you're just up to your neck in nighttime feedings and diaper changes. I don't know. <laughs> but at 
Advent, we remember that Jesus took on the fullness of our humanity. He was victimized, he was traumatized, he was marginalized, he was stripped, he was shamed, he was condemned to be tortured and killed on a stake. And at the last minute, he didn't produce the proof of his innocence, although he had it in spades. Instead, he chose to die for those who had condemned him. Friends, he is still breaking through in the most surprising ways. Through people like Tamar, he's breaking in to redeem, to restore, and to remake this world. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, you have come into our world. You are here with us. And God, we pray that when you break through, when you break into the places where we need you, where we're desperate for you, that we would have the eyes to see you, that we would be able to receive you when you bring restoration through people like Tamar. God, be here with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.